Welcome to the Cloud Architects Podcast, a podcast about cloud, technology, and the people using it. The Cloud Architects Podcast is sponsored by Kemp Technologies. Choose Kemp to optimize your multi-cloud application deployments and simplify multi-cloud application management. A single pane of glass for application delivery, Kemp provides a 360-degree view of your entire application environment and even third-party ADCs. Download Kemp 360 for free today at kemptechnologies.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Architects podcast. I'm here today with my co-host, Chris Goosen. Hello. And we have a very special guest today who's going to talk about something that's wonderfully contentious. And I'm going to ask Chris to introduce our guest to us today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited about this topic, actually. And, and I'm super excited about the person we're speaking to. So uh, we, we are joined by Ashwin Powell, who is the Director of Cybersecurity for the APAC region at Unisys. And Ashwin and I actually go back uh, a really long time. He was the really the the reason I got interested in cybersecurity in the first place. And so super excited to have you, Ashwin. Welcome. Uh, thank you, Chris. Um, great to be on this, and great to reconnect, man. It's it's been it's been too long. It has. It's been a, it's been a really long time. I think we could probably trace back the last time we saw each other at a, to some pub somewhere in the rocks, but we won't go into that on this episode. <laughs> so, um, as a uh, means of introduction, do you want to tell the folks listening uh, a little bit about yourself and and what it is you do? Yep, definitely. Um, so obviously, Ashton Powell and I run the cybersecurity business for Unisys across uh, Asia Pac. Um, been in Australia now for 13 years, um, but I'm I'm a Kiwi uh, and uh, been doing this for 22 years now. So, you know, um, yeah, there isn't much that I haven't touched around the cyber cyber security space. Right, and and the the contentious subject that I think Nick was referring to is uh, zero trust. Right, I think we hear the Ooh. the <laughs> we hear the phrase I'm so keen. zero trust a lot uh, lately. Yeah, right, and I and I think maybe. Probably the best place to start is to to probably unpack exactly what that means because I think what what I've found is in talking to folks and talking to customers is there's a real mis a misconception around zero trust. You know, some folks think it's a product like, hey, can I yeah. get me some of that zero trust? Um, you yeah. know, I, I think there's a real misunderstanding in the in, in sort of in the industry as to what it means and what it is. Who uh, many people have takes on it. So, can you help us kind of unpack a little bit about you know at its core what it is? Yep, no, totally, man. And, uh, you know, you are pressing my buttons again as, as you used to when you were in Australia. Um, so, unfortunately, you talk to anyone um, right now, any other vendors, they've got their own definition, right? Um, and uh, Zero Trust came out of Forrester. So, um, I get along really well with the APAC head of uh, security at Forrester. And, uh, you know, she, she's running a survey right now. And one of the key points that is, that's actually come out from the survey with CISOs is just a frustration around the multiple definitions of zero trust. So zero trust, it's a philosophy. It is not a tool, okay? Um, it's, it's not a particular technology. It's really a way of actually implementing cybersecurity in an organization. It was actually founded by John Kendervag, um, ex-Forrester guy, um, in 2010. And really, the principle effectively states, never trust, always verify. That's the key thing. Now, what that effectively means is that any user or application, any device, 
that is actually coming into your organization. Any one of those needs to be authenticated properly, needs to be authorized. You need to implement very, very limited role-based access controls on a need-to-know basis only. And you're consistently authenticating, authorizing them. And at the same time, you're using a myriad of other technologies to make sure that you are watching their behavior, you are watching their security posture, you're looking at other context and other data, um, things like threat intelligence information, you know, through things like security log monitoring, et cetera, to make sure if anything actually goes bump, you actually kick them off and automatically that should actually happen um, by itself. Now, uh, interestingly enough, about two weeks ago now, um, NIST has actually released its paper on zero trust architecture, and they have discussed a lot of these concepts. Now, what are the concepts that actually they have talked about uh, in there is one of control plane and data plane. Right, so data plane is basically, so you segregate both areas. Data plane is actually where the data travels. Control plane is effectively um, where you actually implement access controls, or authorization controls, and that's how you actually control access to the underlying data, and you basically um, segregate both of those. So when you talk about zero trust, there are multiple ways of implementing it. The segregation that is that I'm talking about, micro segmentation, it is one of those um, that I'm most familiar with, to be honest. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, so long as there is a separation between the control plane and the data plane, and you are consistently authorizing, authenticating your, your users, your applications, your devices, establishing the trust, maintaining that trust through constant um, posture checking, behavior monitoring, encrypting the data on the wire, that's quite important as well. That's what zero trust will give you. And as I said, you can hear it in what I'm saying. It is not a tool or technology. It is a philosophy. And it really depends on how you implement that in your implement that in your environment. Ashwin, I, I have to ask. I think it's really easy for us who've been around for a long time to hear authentication and assume identity, right? So you approach my application or my service, and I'm going to constantly ask you to verify who you are through whatever methodology that we, we have. However, what does zero trust mean when we get to the, the actual wire of data on the wire? And how do we do zero trust in a, a physical environment like a layer two, layer three, all the way up to a layer seven, where I'm talking zero trust across clouds, zero trust towards my data center, how do I do that in a practical manner without vendor lock-in? Or is yep. that just impossible? No, 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 no. Um, it is absolutely possible. In fact, um, you should abstract yourself from the vendors. So what you should actually be doing is coming up with a strategy, which is um, you know, not technology-focused. So the key components that I actually just spoke about, you, know, you start off by thinking about what those key components are and how you would actually address those key components. The core aspect here, and I like the fact that you actually talked about the OSI model, because I would actually walk away from that and actually talk about identity itself. Identity is the new perimeter, mm. okay? Because mm. what is a network? Mm. Where is your perimeter? Yeah. Can you answer that? You can't. It doesn't exist. You know, even with cloud, is anybody using one cloud? No. Yeah. People are using multi-cloud. So if you abstract yourself from the network layer or any technology for that matter and focus on the core principles of zero trust, which I actually just mentioned, 
at a strategic level and then drill down to try and achieve those outcomes. That's how you would actually achieve zero trust. So if you took that identity piece, right, and entire role-based access control just to those identities at an abstract layer, it doesn't matter where that identity goes, whether it's in your network, whether it's in your home, and that's very, very relevant now, mm-hmm. um, particularly uh, with respect to working from home, remote access and all that stuff, or whether it's actually in the cloud. And again, that's very important now as well because a big part of this COVID working from home shift is people are working from home now and a lot of the data is actually now in the cloud so you can access mm-hmm. that easily. Now, if you take the concept of that identity, which stays the same, doesn't matter if it's on-prem, whether it's in the cloud, whether it's in your home, you tie your access to that identity and then enforce quite strict role-based granular um, access controls. That's how you establish that trap based on the identity and that's how you restrict the access. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is forget about the network, just don't trust it and put something else on top, which is completely not network related in any semblance. And what we're going to pivot off on everything is identity. 100%, because at the end of the day, how far does your network extend? Can you extend it into Azure Cloud? Can you extend it into Google's Cloud? Can you extend it into AWS? You can't. Can you extend it into people's homes? Not really, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got a situation now where there are multiple users coming in from their home using the BYOD machines because not everybody had a laptop. So when they actually went home, they could not procure laptops. I know for a fact, Dell, Nova, all of these guys literally ran out of laptops. You couldn't buy one, okay? Mm -hmm. The option was, okay, cool. Um, We'll set your home laptop up to actually come in so now all of a sudden you're using BYOD machines coming in over an insecure wireless connection straight into your network. Yeah. Are you going to trust that connection? Are you going to trust that endpoint? You see what you see where I'm going with this? Oh so yeah. Challenge that you are trying to address. And frankly, zero trust is the answer. Um, I love you know, making predictions and just being controversial in general. Um, Chris is used to it, which is why he's laughing. Um, One of the things that I've actually been saying is, uh, um, you know, zero trust, frankly, last year was a pie in the sky concept. Mm. Um, With the whole COVID thing, it's basically given it a shot in the arm. Um, I I, I guarantee you, within three years, a lot of organizations would either be working towards zero trust or would seriously have it on the roadmap. Zero trust is actually not easy to put into place because there are a number of challenges with regards to compatibility with legacy environments, change resistance, um, except, you know, time and cost, all of that stuff. So you'll need to eat the elephant. Mm. Um, hopefully there aren't too many elephant lovers on this call um, <laughs> uh, in bite-sized chunks, mm. right? And that's, that's what you've got to do. But at the end of the day, People simply have no choice now mm-hmm. with the working from home stuff, with the move to cloud. And trust you me, not everybody's, hardly anyone's going to come back into the office full time anymore. The whole working from home stuff is here to stay. Yeah. So you've yeah. got to have you've got to have a, a response to that business challenge. And zero trust gives you a pretty solid answer. So so uh, so what I what I like about what you've said is because for for the longest time, um, I've been preaching that the identity is the foundational component of any move to the cloud. 
right? Whenever we talk to customers, I spoke to, I had a, a late customer call yesterday um, where they tend to get so fixated on the fact that they need to move data from on-prem to, uh, you know, on-premises servers into a cloud environment, or they need to enable this feature in, in Teams. And then you take the wind out of the sails when you say, well, hang on, have you thought about your identity? Oh, well, what do you mean? Well, people need to be able to log into stuff. And that really is like, if you, it's like building the house, right? You can't do it without doing that foundational step. Um, yeah. I, I kind of experienced the same thing because during COVID, I was trying to get a new laptop myself and uh, <laughs> I ended up having to use a, uh, use a, a Windows machine for a little while because my, my Mac was in order and it just took for, forever for me to get it, right? And it's the same situation, like vendors everywhere were having, having issues with this. And fortunately, you know, I was able to, to continue working with, without a problem. But, um, you know, you're right. I think this, this new norm, this new shift, this is interesting. So I, what I wanted to pick on, or at least what I wanted to ask, I had a couple of questions. Now, the first one's going to be a little bit more controversial, right? Which I know you're up for. Um, I've heard a lot of talk about uh, something that Google calls Beyond Corp. Um, yeah. And, and, and um, it comes up a lot in these kind of zero trust type conversations. Is just is this just Google's branding on some on the same concept, or is this something that they're trying to turn into something? So that, okay. So that's ZTNA. Here we go. Now I'm going to start throwing four three-letter acronyms at you. <laughs> um, that's uh, zero trust zero trust network access. It is a it's a piece of a puzzle. It is absolutely not completely um, zero trust on its own. Right. Yeah. So. Effectively, what Beyond Corp does, and uh, you've got Zscaler um, that have got a similar technology as well, um, and uh, you know it, they effectively allow um, secure remote access to certain applications, um, and the access is tightly controlled, and the applications are not exposed until such time that you actually need access to it. That's effectively it in a, in, in summary, right? Yep. Um, so that's what Beyond Corp is. Um, as I said to you earlier, if you go back to my initial definition, um, zero trust needs to be holistic. It needs to cover um, any device, anywhere, any access methodology, anytime, right? So ZTNA is a piece of the pie. It is not the entire pie. Okay. Mm. Very interesting. And now I the other, obviously, uh, just to add to that, Chris, the other thing you've got to be very careful about is vendor lock-in, right? So um, we spoke about that earlier, and that was actually one of the questions. What you've got to think about is that if you go with a particular vendor, in this case, Google, um, you know, what are your limitations? Mm. Um, what can you do with them? What you cannot do without them? And is that going to lock you in and actually prevent you from, um, you know, implementing um, the access from, you know, a place where they may not actually exist or something like that? So, again, you've got to be very careful about vendor lock-in. And as I say, don't start with a technology. Mm. Start with what you want to achieve yep. and then go from there. That's key. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. So uh, the second sort of, I guess, tack on question to that, um, we're talking about the identity. It's it's the key part of that. And you're, you're essentially wanting to authenticate um, based on all of the data points that you have, right? And so yeah. when, we, when we look at something like conditional access, um, I mean, is it okay? Because you know, a common a common situation when you when you use conditional access is to say, well, if we can identify that we have a known device and we know the user user credentials, we trust the user credentials, that we can be a little bit more relaxed around how we 
you know, so no two-factor, for example, right? And maybe we allow mm -hmm. that person because it's a trusted identity, it's a trusted device, uh, we can allow them access to some really sensitive data. Whereas that same user identity coming from grandma's device or, you know, a, a McDonald's network that we've never seen, maybe we want to do a few more things, right? So would you say that uh, something like conditional access kind of plays into this or is a key kind of building block for it? No, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there, right? So one of the key issues around implementing zero trust is uh, change resistance because, um, you know, let me take it a step back. Um, as humans, um, as organizations, we've always worked on the principle of trust, right? For example, I'm sure you guys have all heard, why would you hire someone if you don't actually trust them, right? Zero trust is effectively going completely against that. Now, just to be clear, we're not saying that we don't trust our employees. What we're actually saying is that depending on the risk profile, um, and it's, it is related to everything you just said, you know, we want to be able to make sure that we can verify before we can actually trust. It actually makes sense. It's a bit like, you know, someone's actually knocking on your front door. They've got a helmet on. Yeah. What are you going to do? Open the front door? Because at the moment, uh, the way network access actually works is that, you know, you come in and Chris, you know this, um, you know, you either get a wired or wireless connection onto your network. By the time the login prompt comes up, you're already on the network, mm. correct? Yeah. What you've just done is you've actually let this person with a helmet on into the house. You've opened the front door, they've walked into the house and then you go, oh, <laughs> are you dull? <laughs> Too late. Yeah. Right. What we're saying is basically keep the door shut, make sure this person pulls the helmet off. And if you know him, let him in. If you don't, keep them out there. Goes back to what you just said, right? It's all risk-based. So um, if the person isn't actually wearing a helmet, you can see their face, happy days. The risk is lower. Uh, you'll actually have lower um, controls in place and, and you let them in because you've got to be very, very careful and cognizant of balancing user experience mm. with enhanced security. And that's always the friction when it comes to cyber security. Um, and that's, that's where a risk-based decision is very, very important. Um, and then if they're higher risk, you put further controls in place. And then once they're actually in, a key aspect um, um, of this is user and entity behavior analysis. So, you know, constantly monitoring um, you know, what this user is doing, what this device is doing, and whether it actually matches what you would actually expect. And if, if, if it doesn't, then hopefully you've got an automated control to either kill their access or limit their access, because that could potentially mean that something's changed. You know, we've got a man in the middle attack or something like that that has actually happened. Mm. Obviously, with men in the middle, as you know, um, it's a case of a valid user um, session has just been hijacked by somebody um, who is nefarious. So, you know, it is risk-based, but at the but having said that, you still need to make sure you actually have controls in place that you can constantly monitor and control the very session until the end. I want to, um, since we're asking contentious question, ask another contentious question. <laughs> and we, we spoke about identity, which was wonderful, and I'm completely on that bandwagon. But then, both of you, very quickly, Chris, you started off talking about Microsoft Azure Active Directory conditional access. And Ashwin, you didn't bet an eyelid. We just go with the flow that there is only one identity provider. And for, for years, for decades, in fact, on-premises, 
it made sense that we would use Microsoft Active Directory and our users are spoiled because we obfuscate authorization and authentication one package and particularly with Kerberos life is just, you know, it's great and it works. And, but then we go to cloud, right? And whose identity model are we talking about? We're still talking yeah. about Microsoft identity. And so let me ask you, Ashwin, I want to ask you a question that a customer of mine asked me and he said, I am concerned about vendor lock-in. I said, yeah. okay, but what have you literally for 20 years been running in your data center? He says, well, Microsoft Active Directory. But now, now that I'm going to cloud, I'm concerned because people have told me about this thing called vendor lock-in. Yeah. And how do I not get locked into Microsoft's Azure Active Directory? However, the other side of the coin is, I don't see anyone else doing conditional access and doing what Microsoft is doing that can, at least from the outside in, do that thing of who are you and where you from at the same time before I'm going to let you access my service, right? So how do we answer that question to the market? Absolutely. And and uh, so a couple of responses to that one. Um, Obviously, you'd recall I talked about control plane and data plane, right? Which is why I actually yeah. started off and discussed the, the concept of the control plane. The control plane effectively abstracts all of the technologies, right? So I have a control plane which actually enforces um, authentication authorization. I don't really care where the identity store is, where it's coming from. And that's literally, you know, what we've actually what we've actually done. So um, you know, uh, on-prem, use AD as an example. I don't care. In the cloud, um, where you've got workloads which are actually running and don't have connection to your um, AD internally, um, stand up a simple PKI infrastructure. Basically use certificate-based authentication, and that drives your identities for those workloads. So, as I said, you know, you've got to be, whenever you start with this, you've got to start with the concepts, the building blocks, and make sure you're actually addressing the building blocks as opposed to coming in from a technology angle. And it's it's a very valid point because, yes, you're right, Chris actually did go down the technology path, but you would have noticed I keep pulling you guys back away from technology. This is not a technology conversation. Mm. This is a, a concept, a philosophy co uh, conversation whereby you'll actually have building blocks from multiple providers that you would then pull together based on the various components of zero trust into a, into a cohesive architecture that yeah. is then deployed. So it makes sense. And, and the example I've just given to you um, mixes up your own PKI infrastructure, which you would have set up in the cloud as an example, um, and AD on-prem. Mm -hmm. I don't care. I'm sure you guys would have had the same discussions with customers when we asked them, so um, let's have the security discussion. They say, oh, mate, I'm secure because I have vendor whoever that is, right? And you think, but hang on, that's a vendor. Mm. That's not a framework. That's not a strategy. Mm. A And when I used to work for a migration vendor, it was also a management vendor. I, I used to talk to my customers and say that software is not a process. Mm. Software enables a process. And if you were talking to a customer who's in cloud, wants to go to cloud, because to be fair, we still have customers who are in cloud and how immature 
right? And that's not from a security posture. That's not from a, a, a mental point of view. Or customers who are still evaluating about going to cloud for the very first time. What would you say to those folks? So, I mean, in terms of migrating to the cloud, um, you've got to you've got to get the basics right first, right? Like, and again, um, what is your security posture? What is your risk posture? Mm. You know, do you have policies around your minimum cybersecurity standards? It's those things that come into play. Mm. I mean, if you look at any one of the cloud providers. Um, they provide security in the cloud. Some of it is pretty good, some of it is pretty average. But at the end of the day, it's a bit like going to a restaurant and somebody gives you a menu, right? You've got all these things that you actually can put in place or eat in this case. Mm. It's up to you. It's like, what do you want to eat and how hungry you are? Mm. It's exactly the same concept. It's actually not about, you can't and you shouldn't start mm. uh, with, a, with a technology conversation. It, it's got to be about your requirements, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you are specifically looking at zero trust, Zero trust is one of those beautiful things which allows you to um, push your security, um, you know, based on what you've talked about, um, into the cloud that you can control and is actually equivalent to on-prem security. Um, it, it abstracts you from um, the security that is provided by the cloud provider. I'm not saying you don't use that. In fact, you should. But... You know the concept in security about multiple layers, right? So if there is an issue with the cloud provider, mm. um, there was an issue with um, Amazon's cloud director um, not long ago, right? Um, there was a vulnerability found. Now, if you actually have the type of issue, but if you actually have a zero trust philosophy in place, whereby you are controlling some of the security yourself, and you have allowed minimum security based on st strict authentication, mm. then you have a degree of protection. So those are the things you actually have to think about. But it does come down to, um, you know, what are your minimum standards around security? What is acceptable from a risk perspective? Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. I think that's a very important point because I always pick on Nick because he has this phrase that he uses a lot called requirements elicitation, right? Because you don't just gather requirements up like they're, you know, puppies. And, and so I think that's important because I've had a lot of conversations with customers, specifically security conversations, uh, where where they go, uh, well, we need to secure this thing, and you're like, okay, well, what is your risk profile, and what what are the what's important to you from a security perspective? What are your requirements? And they go, well, I don't know the product, so I don't know what it can do. I was like, yeah, but that's yes. not, that's not the question I asked, right? The question is, what are your requirements? Because we will tailor the product to do, you know, the platform to do what it what meet those requirements. And so you get into this sort of chicken and egg situation where someone's standing there with their arms crossed, going, well, I need to understand what the what features it has and what it can do. And it's like, well, that's not really the discussion we're having here. You need, yeah. you, need you know, we need to talk about what. And 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 I think the other part of this um, is the concept of, you know. Folks tend to sometimes overthink this as well, right? They go into mm. this sort of analysis paralysis where they want to end up spending significantly more to protect something that it, than it's worth, right? And that in itself isn't yes. a good idea either. So, uh, very important to understand. Like, if you don't, if if you have things that are not um, that critical, or a whole bunch of public, you know, publicly categorized documents, for example, right? Does it make sense for you to go down this like super? deep path of putting all of these crazy security controls in place when if that thing isn't all that important to begin with so understanding that risk profile and understanding your requirements very very important to this whole discussion that was my long roundabout way of getting to that point no, i completely agree because that's really where the conversation actually needs to start 
if you are starting a security conversation uh, with with technology, um, straight away the red flag goes up for me because yeah. you're gonna end up in a very wrong place. Yeah, you're almost ticking feature boxes at that point, right? Trying to make yeah. features fit and go. Oh well, we've bought this license. Let's make sure we're using every single one of those check boxes on the feature list. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. And I use the word elicitation because, well. Uh, for one thing, it was taught to me by a, a business analyst who was fantastically mature in, in this whole discussion. And how he illustrated it to me was just like Chris says, these requirements aren't lying on the ground for us to pick up because, you know, otherwise it would be easy. And our role when we engage with customers and to me, a customer is, is anyone who has this kind of conversation and could be an internal role or an external role. And for us as an external role, we would go and wrestle with our customers. And it's kind of like standing with our feet on their shoulders with a pair of pliers, trying to pull these requirements out of their mouth because it's not an easy discussion. It's a case of let's stop talking about this feature. Let's go back to what is our need? What is What are we trying to defend? And very often when we talk to senior folks in the business, especially the C-suite folks who've been marketed to by vendors, they will say, and I'll take the conversation back 20 years. I want a BlackBerry. Well, why do you want a BlackBerry? Well, it's because I went down to the pub. I was living in London at the stage. So I, I went down to the pub and my, uh, my friend, who's a director who works for this other company, showed me his BlackBerry and it's cool. Now, whatever's at the back end, can you make that work? But that's not a requirement. <laughs> so if, if we then walk them forward to, do you need mobile collaboration? Oh, yeah. Well, do you need secure mobile collaboration? And, and then we take them down that path of let's articulate what it is that we need that in your head is aligned to a feature, but you saw that feature and you thought, I need that because that makes sense. But let's turn it back into something that we can then defend from a requirements point of view. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, and that's the critical part. Like every conversation needs to start around you know, what is your risk appetite? Where are you in relation to your risk appetite? So what's your current risk posture? And, you know, how, if there's a gap, then how do we actually get there? And, you know, you, you look at the building blocks. Now, obviously, a key part of that is you need to understand where your information assets are and how critical they are, because that's what's going to drive the security controls. Yeah. But you've also got to throw into the mix how the threat landscape is actually changing. So for instance, um, if you look at what I just said, the massive the move um, with working from home effectively changed the threat landscape, you know, for the worse. The whole environment became a lot less controllable because people were in their homes, BYOD machines, and secure wireless, what I spoke about earlier. Then you've got to take a step back and, and think about, all right, so how do I actually secure this? Like what, what access is required? What's the criticality of the data being accessed? Where is this data? And, you know, is zero trust a good way to go? Mm. Those are the questions you would actually ask before even going down the zero trust path. Going back to what Chris actually said, and I know this is an absurd example, but just go with it. You know, if you've actually got users that are constantly coming in, looking at publicly available information and doing stuff with it, boo-hoo, 
you know, the controls that you need to put in place is going to be much less. Mm -hmm. However, if they are coming in and if they are actually playing around with the formula for Coca-Cola, mm -hmm. yeah, you might want to think about zero trust in their case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. So um, last question, I guess, for me that I have is in resources, right? Let's say someone's listening to this and they're going, okay, I understand that zero trust is a methodology or a, you know, a, a mindset as opposed to a product that I can go buy off the shelf, right? No, no matter what vendors are telling you, it is not a product. Um, but I want to learn more. I want to, I want to understand how I can implement this in my environment or, or for my organization. Are there some, like, are there good resources available for folks to go and skill up or at least, um, you know, get better acquainted with this and something that isn't completely kind of marketing skewed? Uh, I was going to say, uh, I could give up my email address, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Expect hey, look, the daily yes. Dilbert. <laughs> um, jokes aside, uh, two things come to mind. One, and thank God, um, uh, Nest actually has written the Zero Trust um, architecture paper. Um, I would, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Nest convert, mm -hmm. um, and I go, go to Nest for all of my... Uh, you know, references first up. That's probably the one that I actually reference most because it's obviously vendor agnostic, mm -hmm. right? And uh, um, frankly, I've, I've written a white paper on this and you won't believe it. I literally wrote it over Christmas because I was getting so frustrated with seeing all the different zero trust definitions coming up. I went, stop it. I'm going to write my own paper and define this once and for all. Um, <laughs> The definition so, to 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 rule all definitions. How, hang on, how come exactly. I didn't know about this in all of my my research for this episode? I didn't even know about this. So, can, is that something we can share in the show notes? Is it? It's a publicly oh. available paper. Uh, yeah, hundred percent, man. Okay. I'll, I'll 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 flick it to you um, after this, and feel yes, free to, feel free to distribute it uh, with this. Um, yeah, go for your life. Um, so it'll cover a lot of the concepts that I've actually spoken about. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's like, I've discussed not just zero trust, but what are some of the challenges, mm -hmm. uh, organizational challenges, as well as a suggested approach. So, you know, zero trust is, is, it's hard to actually shoehorn or fit into a legacy environment, mm -hmm. but a lot of people are going through, um, uh, digital transformation. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are actually going through, um, cloud migrations, as we discussed earlier, those are great places to start because they're green fields, um, opportunities and projects. The thing is, you've got to make sure that you're building security and zero trust as part of the entire process as opposed to towards the end and somebody goes, oh, what about security? Oh, okay. Yeah, we've never that seen is, that happen. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've, never, we've never heard that one before, have we? <laughs> I use that example on a daily basis pretty much because I've just, it, it's, it's happened so often. <laughs> oh, you don't even start. Uh, and then it's a nightmare and a disaster, right? Yeah. So you've got to make sure you're actually putting security in uh, from the start. And, you know, I mean, this is applicable to security, uh, sorry, zero trust as much as it is to broader security. When you're actually thinking of a, a project, my God, I don't understand why you actually wouldn't have security as a key requirement. So when you're doing the requirement definition phase right up front, mm. before you're even going to like project funding business casing stage, it should be in there. Mm. You should be costing up security against your requirements and then going ahead with the project. Yeah. And that is yeah. an idea of mine to stick zero trust in. And effectively, it's almost a case of land and expand. Okay, you land your trust into your your cloud migrations, your digital transformation projects, 
And then as your legacy environments are getting refreshed, mm. you expand, you expand, you expand, mm. right? It's a multi-year, multi-phased journey, but you've got to start somewhere. And as I said, um, a lot of this I've discussed um, in my short, sharp paper, um, yeah, which, which I'll share after the call. And feel free to share that with the audience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, Chris, before we we end, there's there's um there's something I want to draw an analogy to, and and Ashwin, I'd I'd like for you to to agree or to correct. So, uh, if I'm putting my my Microsoft hat back on, one of the things that I gain from docs.microsoft.com is the cloud adoption framework for Azure. And one of the things I enjoy about that is that it actually is a vendor agnostic. So for all of those Microsoft bashers out there, there's this free framework called the Cloud Adoption Framework for Azure, and it addresses multi-cloud. And one of the things that you get from that is the concept of building a minimally viable product from day one. Yeah. And after we finish the envisioning phase of we go to the business and say, what are you willing to spend money on? Right. So what is this thing that cloud is going to do for us in a measurable way? We actually start with our governance framework and governance starts on day one with our MVP. Now, I've taken that methodology and I've applied it to our productivity customers. So those folks going to Office 365 and after we do this envisioning thing of to the cloud, we get the folks in the room. And then I look the governance person in the eye and say, you've just become the most important person in the room because without you, we can't move a single byte to the cloud without being compliant to whatever's important in your life. And this concept of going to cloud in a secure manner, including zero trust, doesn't have to be this thing that says, oh, it's going to take me 10 years to become secure. It means I'm going to start somewhere mm -hmm. and then I'm going to be iteratively more mature as I take my minimally viable product and I iterate through that as I become more mature in my security posture and become more mature in zero trust so that I build something that I as an organization can sustain. Yep, well said. And I'm sure you guys know, um, Microsoft's Microsoft is an absolute zero trust convert. Yeah. They talk so much. Actually, they're on a multi-year zero trust migration journey, period, yeah. right? And they're embedding it in the cloud environment, um, just, just talking about Microsoft itself. Um, so, yeah, they're absolutely sold on the concept 100%. And if you're listening to totally. this and you want to know one thing you can do to start today, turn on multi-factor auth. Yes. That's where you yes, start, yes. right? That's where you start. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ashwin, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up again and having you, having you talk to us about this. Um, if folks on the call want to reach out to you and, and, and sort of get in touch and, and talk about uh, Zero Trust or anything else security related, how can they, how can they find you? Uh, easiest thing to do is just uh, drop, me, drop me a line. Um, and my email address is ashwin, A-S-H-W-I-N dot pal, P-A-L, at unisys.com. Okay. And on the socials, you're on LinkedIn, right? I, I'll, uh... I'm on LinkedIn, so you can feel free to message me uh, on LinkedIn as well. Okay, excellent. I'll put, I, we don't typically publish email addresses, but I'll publish a link to your LinkedIn profile. Just keep the spam out of your inbox, you know, doing my, doing my yeah, part. Yeah, edit that part out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, look, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to uh, possibly having you back again sometime in the future.
Yeah, man, no worries. Any 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 topic, um, I'll I'll have an opinion as you know. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Ashwin. Thanks, guys. Hey everyone, before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud Arc. <laughs>